0: It's nice to be back with you all this morning to continue our study in the book of Revelation. Um, turn to chapter 14 this morning. The last time I was here, I believe, was the 23rd of April, a few weeks ago. and We were looking at verse 8 in chapter 14. This is amidst that victory campaign in the great war between Israel and Satan. And... Um, we're in the victory campaign. The first few verses of chapter 14 give us a snapshot of assembly atop Mount Zion, with Messiah, and now we're in the second snapshot of victory, the snapshot of judgment. This involves three angelic messengers, the first one announcing the everlasting gospel. We talked about the four forms of the gospel in the New Testament, not four gospels, but four forms of the gospel message, in terms of emphasis, And now we're looking at the second angelic messenger that announces the fall of Babylon, the fall of the world system. If you weren't here last time, I just posted this message, Babylon is Fallen, that I preached on the 23rd. You can go look at it on the new FPGM website, the podcast there. And as of now, fpgm.org or foolproof.org both go to the new website, so you can't access the old one anymore. It's gone forever. This one's more mobile friendly to to the point there. But verse 8, very simple. An angelic messenger makes an announcement. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Last time we talked about this verse, does it indicate that the literal city of Babylon will be rebuilt? and serves as a capital of the one world government perhaps but revelation also shows that babylon's more than just a city it's a world system it's referred to as mystery babylon in revelation chapter 17 we already see in chapter 11 that the name that jerusalem is called sodom and egypt because of what she stands for spiritually and that the fall of babylon is connected to a great earthquake in which all the cities of the world are destroyed a little bit later in the book. So this is a world system. It's the body politic. And as we see here in this announcement in verse 8, Babylon is called a great city and she's and, and her fornication or her spiritual fornication is referred to. When we look at the world system, it has two arms. A religious arm and a commercial arm. And this is spelled out in more detail in Revelation 17 and 18. Here we have the announcement... 17 and 18 we have a parenthesis describing in detail how both the religious and the commercial arms of the body politic or the world system finally come to an end. And then last time I wanted to go back and trace the origins of this world system. Where did this spirit of the body politic that governs, we, it takes the form of globalism today, globalism is Babylon today, But where did this begin? And we went back to the book of origins, Genesis. There's so much in Revelation that completes or ends what began in Genesis. You can't have one without the other. And today people want to start questioning Genesis. Satan hates the book of Genesis and wants to call it into question because it reveals to us exactly who he, he is. And it reveals to us his tricks. If we're familiar with Genesis and the origin of not just... God's creation but all the wicked evil spirits of the age, then we can recognize it. And he wants to conceal that. But this origin goes all the way back to Genesis 4. We talked about Cain. Cain went out. He's the father of the body politic before the flood. He instituted man-made religion. He believed he could come to God on his own terms and that God should be satisfied with his sacrifice. And when God didn't accept his offering, he got mad, picked up his ball, and well, he killed his brother. What false religion always does to those more righteous than they, he killed his brother and then he left. And then what was the first thing he went and did? He went and had a son and then he built a city. So Cain is the father of man-made religion and he's the father of the metropolitan area, the, the, the center of all that is wicked and evil on this earth. The father of the spirit of Babylon. And then we traced Cain's legacy down to the days of the Flood. Referring back to that spirit of Cain, we need to be aware of his philosophy, which is pragmatism. That's what governs the church today, sadly. We need to be aware of his offering, a bloodless offering. That's the Jesus that's preached from modern-day churchianity today, a Jesus without the blood. And we need to be aware of that legacy. That legacy was erased in the Flood. And that which continued after will be erased completely and forever when Jesus Christ comes back. And that's what this angel is announcing. So we went back and we looked at the pre-flood legacy of this spirit of Babylon. We looked at some genealogical gems that are there in the book of Genesis that show that despite all of this corruption, God has and has always maintained a faithful witness. There was a clear witness of God amidst a corrupt world politics. And we see it traced from Adam to Seth, ten generations all the way down to Noah. And so we looked at some of those things spread out over a period of 1656 years from creation to the flood. And then I briefly touched upon Noah and his three sons after the flood and the spirit of Cain that endured after the flood. Cain's descendants were destroyed, but the spirit of Babylon endured. And there was groundwork laid after the flood that led to the actual event or the establishment of the kingdom of Babylon and the tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. But even as before the flood, after the flood, there was a world system developing, but God had a witness. God had a witness amidst this corruption, and that witness can be traced from Noah all the way down to Abraham and then with Abraham God decided to do something different because by the days of Abraham the world was a sea of nations a sea of nations that had been influenced by what happened at Babel and had taken that world system around the earth and a sea of nations and a sea of people that had turned their back on God and so God decided to do something different instead of maintaining a witness through a genealogical line he would raise up a nation to be a witness of His truth amongst a sea of nations overwhelmed by the spirit of the world system and that's why God made the as He did to Abraham and that's why God rose up the Jewish people. Now the Jewish people weren't faithful in being the witness that God called them to do and they too turned their back on God just like Noah's descendants so quickly did after the flood and for that reason God raised up the church. The church primarily to provoke Israel to jealousy. And the raising up of the church actually fulfilled promises that Noah prophesied about concerning his son. So all of these things are linked together. And today, I'd like to continue to trace this world system. Its it's fall is announced there in Revelation 14.8. And I want to continue to trace this world system today after the flood. I want, we've gone from Adam down to Noah. Now I want to go from Noah all the way to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we're going to bring it to Revelation 14. Now why would we take time to do this? I mean, I know people that have preached through Revelation really quickly. I've read a lot of commentaries where very few of these issues are touched upon. And we seem to be getting stopped uh, every few verses. And we seem to be going back to all these places and it's taken us forever to get through this book. I've been trying to transfer all of the old podcast episodes of this teaching over to the new website and it is taking some time. I've gotten episodes, this episode 98 today. We're closing in on a hundred and we're, we've got a long way to go. I've gotten episodes like 60 through 97 moved over to the new website. Why? Is it a problem? Do I need to just quit getting sidetracked and move on? Maybe, but why would we take time to trace these things? Why would we cross-reference? Why would we get into history? I think the Apostle Paul gives us the answer. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10.11. A lot of ministries today focus solely upon the New Testament and act as if the Old Testament is less authoritative as if it's been replaced by the New Testament. Some falsely teach that the church is a replacement of Israel. Some foolish people even think that us white people are Israel. The British and the United States, we are Israel, we are the new Israel. That's called Armstrongism, be very careful about that stuff. I was encouraged to see this week some video footage from a worship service that took place in the White House on the National Day of Prayer. But what quickly turned my attention from what should have given me encouragement was a big, huge ad on the website by someone promoting this British Israelism in a new book that had come out. And sure enough, this was a member of the Armstrong cult. What was his name? Herbert Armstrong? I mean, come on. Advertising that? thats Are you too blind to see that that's cultic? But anyway, there's just so much misunderstanding because people don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth. And that's what we're trying to do here. And look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. This is in the context of those in the Old Testament that were guilty of lusting after the flesh, lusting after the things of this life, those that were guilty of idolatry, fornicators both spiritually and physically, the context of those that tempted God or tempted Christ, and those that murmured and complained against God. This is the context in which Paul is saying this in verse 11. Now, all these things, that is the examples of lusting, idolatry, fornicating, tempting Christ, murmuring, these things happened unto them for in samples. An example is something that I can be in terms of a singular uh, uh, issue. Maybe I'm an example of boldness. Maybe not. Maybe I'm an example of someone that opens his mouth too quick. An in sample is someone that is an example in a whole lot of areas. It's a, got a plural connotation there all of these things are written, they're in samples to us. They teach us a lot of things. And they are written, he's referring back to the Old Testament, for our admonition. So when we look at these spirits and we trace them and we look at examples in the Old Testament, it's an in-sample to us. It has a lot to say to us, not just about commercialism or lust, but about spiritual fornication, about murmuring and complaining. And Paul says they are written, that is the Old Testament testimonies of how not to do something or how not to please God are written for our admonition. What's an admonition? It's a warning. It's a rebuke. They are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Why is it an admonition? Why is what happened 2,000 years, 2,500 years before Christ, or 4,000 years before Christ, why is that an admonition? Because there's nothing new under the sun. And men continue to make the same mistakes and never learn from history. And by studying these things, we are warned. They ought to warn us. It ought to give us discernment to detect these spirits when they come into our church bodies. So the negative side of what's recorded in the the Old Testament is our admonition. It's worth looking at. Turn to Romans 15.4. Not just the negative side. I'm not just talking about the the spirit of Babylon and tracing it. I'm also talking about the godly witness. There's a positive side that's there as well. Romans 15.4. This is in the context of Messiah or the witness of God, in which Paul says this, Romans fifteen four. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, Old Testament, concerning Messiah, the witness of God, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. When we find comfort in the Scriptures looking at God's testimonies, the comfort of the Scriptures plus patience, that means waiting on God, just like God's faithful witness did throughout history, equals what? It equals hope. Where does hope come from? Not by watching election results. Not by caring what a bunch of French people that have a history of foolishness decide in some election that I could care less about, but it's all over the moon. Who cares? Let them have cake. My opinion, that's famous quote by French queen years ago. But uh, where do we find hope? Not in the news media. We find it through patience and the, and the um, comfort of the Scriptures. It's written for our learning. So these things are written to warn us and to teach us. The negative warns us. The positive testimony of God and the witness He preserved uh, teaches us. That's why we go back and do these things. That's why the Old Testament is important. That's why we should dig deep and not just blow these things off as irrelevant genealogies. Nothing in there is irrelevant or God wouldn't have put it in there. So that's why we go back and study these things and today I just want to go back to the book of Genesis and I want to talk about God's witness after the flood and yet how the spirit of Cain endured and led to the story we're all familiar with in Genesis 11 which is the Tower of Babel. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. The flood took place 656 years after creation. And there was a witness that God maintained after the flood, through all that wickedness, from Adam, through Seth, down to Noah. Ten generations. Enoch was the seventh from Adam. Enoch was taken out, a type of the church. Okay. Um, the descendants of Cain were a type of the world system. We have Methuselah who died the year of the flood. His name was prophetic, a faithful witness. We have Noah preserved through the judgment of the flood, a type of Israel. Remember, there's types and antitypes throughout the Old Testament. And now we're coming to the time after the flood. The flood would have taken place in 2348 B.C. I happen to believe that the genealogies and the dates of Scripture are accurate. I happen to believe that very strongly, that observable scientific evidence, is uh, there's plenty of it to confirm a young earth. That's not foolishness. Those that mock and scoff at that... uh, are listening to science that's been corrupted by (coughs) political education. Science, it's not science at all. Science is supposed to be observable. And when it comes to science and its deliberations on origin, it takes as much faith to believe some of that garbage as it does to believe the simple truths of the Bible, even more faith. Because we can see the truths of the Bible and we can observe them. We can observe the complexity of nature. But evolution can't be observed. Adaptation, microevolution can be within species, but not macroevolution. Not life coming from non life. These things are not observed. Just because some proteins or DNA, not DNA, but proteins or amino acids can seem to form in a petri dish, doesn't mean that life comes from non life. It's amazing what people want to believe, but that's the world system. It's going to say and do what it wants to believe. Cain's going to convince himself what he wants to believe, despite clear revelation from God. But look at Genesis 9. God made a covenant with Noah. He put the rainbow in the heavens as a reminder of His promise. The rainbow is that symbol that uh, the homosexuals have usurped and they've taken a, what we traditionally understand as a seven color rainbow, made it six colors, the number of a man, I believe that's all done on purpose, and um, have usurped that symbol of God's faithfulness. But then in verse 18, this is after God's covenant with Noah, he was told to go out and be fruitful and multiply and spread across the earth. It says in verse 18, and the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When we see these three sons listed in the Bible, it's always in that order. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Many of us think that means that Shem was the oldest and Ham was the middle and Japheth was younger. We would naturally assume that. That's not the case. And Ham is the father of Canaan. The land of Canaan is where Abraham went. The people of Canaan are the ones, or the descendants of Canaan are the ones that were overthrown by Joshua and the Israelites. They were told to completely destroy them. These are the three sons of Noah and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward. They respected him enough they wouldn't even look at him in that state and they saw not their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his younger son had done unto him." So Ham saw this, and instead of Ham respecting his father and doing what his other two brothers did, he went out and told them about it. He didn't need to go tell them. Why didn't he just do what Shem and Japheth did? There's no reason to go out and blab about it, that's what he did. And Noah knew what his younger son... So Japheth is the... I mean, Ham is the youngest. That's what that word younger means in the original language. So Ham is the youngest son. He's always listed in the middle, but we know here he's the youngest. Noah knew what his younger son had done to him. And then Noah said, Cursed be Ham? No. He knew what Ham did by blabbing his mouth, but when he prophesied he didn't curse Ham. He said, Cursed be Canaan. Who was Canaan? Canaan was his grandfather, our grandson, the son of Ham. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. So you have a grandson of Noah being cursed, and his descendants are being cursed here to be servants of their brethren. And he said, or Noah, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Shem was the middle son. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Shem was obviously prophesied to be a priest of his family here. A minister of his his family before God. Just like Job was of his family and his friends. Just like Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. So here we have an indication that Shem would be a priest and from him would be a priestly people. Verse 27, God shall enlarge Japheth. And he shall dwell in the tents of Sham. Sham being a priest, his tents would be priestly tents, and Japheth would dwell in those tents spiritually. And Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So we learn some interesting things here. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are always listed in that order. Shem is given prominence when those names are listed, but Ham is told, it's said here that he's the youngest. It's Ham's son that is cursed. We don't really know why. This could just be a prophetic statement by Noah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just like Abraham when he told Isaac, God will provide Himself a lamb. There in Genesis chapter 22 Or the reason why Noah was naked in the state he was found in could have had been something to do with his grandson. Some have suggested that his grandson was wicked and his grandson found him drunk and uncovered him and committed a homosexual act there. And that is, Noah's son found it and covered it up and went and blabbed about it. I don't think you can necessarily get that from the Scriptures. There's a prophetic element here. Notwithstanding, Ham's sin was that he's his father in an exposed, embarrassing state, and instead of respecting his father and going in there and covering him up, he went out and blabbed about it to his brothers. How many times are we guilty of that kind of stuff? We see a brother that's done something foolish, and instead of trying to protect him, we want to go out and blab about it. It's supposed to be our brother in Christ. And as a result, Noah awoke and uttered prophecy that we would see fulfilled down through the ages. I think it's interesting when you get to the last verse here in chapter 9, there's a phrase at the end, And he died. When you look at Genesis chapter 5, and the line is traced from Adam all the way to Noah, that godly line, after every individual's life, it says this phrase, And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. But when we get over to Genesis chapter 11, where we begin to see the line traced from Noah to Shem all the way down to Abraham, the godly line after the flood, that phrase isn't there anymore. It's not there anymore. It's not there anymore because it's pointing to a greater truth that will involve Messiah and involve the very things that we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 14 Genesis chapter 10 verse 21 unto Shem also the father of all the children of Eber that word Eber is where we get the word Hebrew from it means a wanderer the brother of Japheth the elder even to him were children born so in Genesis ten twenty-one we learn that Japheth was the oldest son Ham was the younger or the youngest son And Shem was in the middle. But yet it's always listed Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is the one that's blessed. Ham is in the middle. There doesn't seem to be any blessing there in Genesis chapter 10, but he's in the middle. And then Japheth is at the end. So the order of names doesn't always tell us who was born first. And we'll see that with Abraham later. But as far as Noah, after the flood... He lived 350 years. Noah died two years before Abraham was born. So there's a lot of overlapping of lives here that we see when we actually look at the text and the genealogies that sheds light on what was going on. Tradition says that after this event that happened, this embarrassing event that happened to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, that he and his wife migrated east. And in 350, you could father a lot of children, that they migrated east uh, into the Orient, today's Orient, and they fathered more children who became the fathers of what we would call the Mongolian peoples, or the East Asian peoples, the same that migrated out from Asia down into Southeast Asia, up into Japan and China, and then across a probably some sort of land bridge into North America and are the fathers of a lot of the Native American peoples. When you look at the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, a lot of the world's peoples are covered except for the Mongolian peoples. Shem is the father of all the Oriental peoples, the peoples of the Middle East, the Assyrians. Ham is the father of the Africans and the Arabian peoples. Japheth is the father of the European peoples, but there's no ca- account there for the Mongolian peoples. Well, that would make sense that Noah had more children and migrated east, and I'd probably want to migrate east and get away after that embarrassing event myself. So um, that's prob- there's, that seems to be a reasonable explanation of what happened here. And I talked last time about how ancient Chinese characters dealing with certain concepts have symbolism that point back to the flood and the Genesis record. So there's that makes sense. But after the flood, what you have here, I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Well, first of all, 1656 years from creation to the flood. From the flood to Abraham's entrance into Canaan, is 427 years. I find that interesting because we learn later that from Abraham to the law at Mount Sinai was 430 years. So we've got basically two blocks of time that are almost the same. From the flood to Abraham, and then from Abraham to the law. Okay? So the flood would have happened in, I keep having to look back at my notes, 2348 B.C., Abraham went into Canaan in 1921 B.C. So we have a period here of 427 years. Noah had three sons. Japheth was the eldest, Shem the middle, Ham the youngest. And when we look at the genealogies laid out there, we see names in the uh, genealogy of Japheth, Dog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Torgamah, others. These became the fathers of the European peoples. It's interesting because when we look at Japheth's descendants here in chapter 10, we see seven names that pop up in another place in the Old Testament. Bog, Tubal, Meshach, Togermah, Tarshish, and Sheban and Dedan. These are names that pop up in the great prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39 about this invasion that comes into Israel in the last days. That's connected to white people. That's connected to European peoples. Somehow, and it's involved with uh, 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 Arabian peoples as well, or Muslim-type peoples today. Most Arabian peoples are Muslim. So that's all tied together somehow. And We start seeing these alliances now between Russia and Iran and Syria. You start to see how these things could take shape. When we want to look at the identities of these names in Ezekiel, we go back to Genesis 10 and see where they came from. So, Japheth's the father of all the European peoples. Our ancestry would go back to him, most of the people here in this room. Shem, it said, had five sons. And the one that's highlighted is a son named Arphaxed. And from Arphaxed down to Eber, Eber is the one that we get the word Hebrew from. Abraham was called Abraham or Abram the Hebrew. That word Hebrew comes from the man Eber. From Arphaxed to Abraham was ten generations. Just, uh, or not for Shem. From Shem to Abraham is ten generations. Just like Adam to Noah, ten generations. And then we've got Ham. And we have in, uh, let's see here. Let me find my, my place. Genesis chapter 10 verse 6, and the sons of Him Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan. Of course, Canaan is the one that Noah cursed. These are interesting names because when we look at them and we study history, Cush was the father of all of the Ethiopian and Arabian peoples. And so the Ethiopian peoples kind of there in northeast Africa were separated by Arabia by the Red Sea and that's where the Arabian peoples and the uh, Ethiopian peoples came from. When you think of Ethiopians, we often think about those images from the 1980s of starving very dark black people, okay? Northern African peoples by and large don't look like that racially. They're more they've got more of a swarthy Middle Eastern look. And Ethiopians aren't what we would see in those 1980's videos. Those were more central African peoples, the real dark black that were living in parts of Ethiopia, but historically Ethiopian peoples weren't that skin color and they tend to be more swarthy, a little darker than some Middle Eastern peoples but definitely more Middle Eastern. Somalians the same, although they tend to be. You can see a lot of Ethiopian Jewish people today, even living in Israel that are not dark black like those images we would see in the 80s of the starving children. Those were more central African peoples that just happened to be living in what was politically called Ethiopia. But Cush is the father of the Ethiopians and the Arabs and the people of Arabia. And then you've got, uh, not Arabs, the Arabs came from Ishmael. Then you've got uh, Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is Egypt, the Egyptians. And it's funny because even in languages today, Modern Hebrew, the word for Egypt is Mitzrayim. That's what it is in modern Hebrew. In Hindi and Nepali, the word for Egypt is Misri. From Mitzrayim. These are the Egyptians. This is where the kingdom of Egypt came from. A son of Ham. North African. Okay, And then we've got Foot, which is the father of the Libyan peoples. Libyans and... Moroccans and that band of peoples that are mostly Muslim today are also a swarthy, uh, they've got a swarthy Middle Eastern look. And then of course we've got Canaan. Canaan's the father of the peoples of Tyre and Sidon and the different nations that were in the promised land when Abraham came in there. It seems like most of Canaan's descendants have been erased and destroyed. They weren't all destroyed because Israel wasn't obedient when it came into the land under Joshua. Joshua. But down to the days of Solomon, uh, uh, it's possible that most of those are gone, uh, historically. I couldn't say that with any dogmatism. But, so we have four pretty important groups of people in terms of Old Testament history that come from Ham. Now it tells us that Cush had a son whose name was Nimrod. Look at verse 8 of chapter 10. Here we're told that Ham had four sons. And then in verse 7, the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Rama and, Sab- and Sabteca, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba and Dedan. She- Sheba and Dedan pop up in that Ezekiel prophecy later on. And Cush begat Nimrod. So he had another son here that stands out. And it says, Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth. If you look at the genealogies, Nimrod is the 13th from Adam. The 13th from Adam. Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now look at the next verse. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech, and Achad, and Kalne, in the land of Shinar. Now, jump over real quick to Genesis 11. Verse 1, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. So the events of the Tower of Babel we're in the plain of Shinar, that very place we looked at on that video a couple weeks ago. That CNN report about the ruins of Babylon and how how uh, Saddam Hussein had tried to start rebuilding it, and how the UN has dedicated money to rebuilding it, and that was the plain of Shinar. That's where the events of the Tower of Babel took place, and central to that was this great grandson of Noah, Nimrod, a mighty one in the earth. Okay. Um, Out of that land, that is Shinar, verse 11 of chapter 10, went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kala. Now, who were were the people that first builded cities before the flood? Cain. Cain and his descendants. After the flood, this started Nimrod. But it also infected the line of Shem. Shem had a son named Asher that followed Nimrod and his example and he went out and built a city called Nineveh. Asher is the father of the Assyrians, a great persecutor of Israel in history. And their capital was Nineveh. So here we have men after the flood suddenly starting to do the very things that Cain did. In Genesis 4, building cities, gathering men together, conquering people. It's said that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Tradition says that he was one that loved to hunt and he would get bands of people and he would would train them about how to chase and hunt down the animals. And By default, these uh, abilities that were gleaned from hunting were easily used later on after Bible to conquer people that now spoke different languages. He was mighty. He's referred to in history, and secular history, as Ninus, or the first king of ancient Babylon. Very interesting. I would say that after the flood, Nimrod, this thirteenth from Adam, is the spirit of Cain that endures after the flood. He is the father of all political and religious marriages that have happened ever since. A very clear example of that being the Roman Catholic Church that goes back to Constantine. What Constantine did by marrying Christianity with the politics is exactly what Nimrod did by marrying false religion with worldwide commercialism. And the spirit of Babylon, in, in uh, Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, has a religious element and a commercial element. The world system is the marriage of the spiritual with the commercial. Always been that way. And Nimrod is a father. He went out and built a city. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then it's that great city, Babylon, it's fall that is announced. What is the great city in Revelation 14.8? Where did it begin after the flood? It began right here. Now let's back up a minute. Let's look at this story in Genesis 11. And in, in, in a sense, we're backing up because what's described about Nimrod in chapter 10 overlaps a period of time that uh, includes the Tower of Babel and what transpired after that. So we have a summation of his life that involves the Tower of Babel and what takes thereafter. But as I said, Genesis 11, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. This wasn't that long after the flood. These people weren't dumb people. This attitude that ancient man was dumber than us, because we have technology, is... Foolish. That's what evolution teaches, but the opposite is actually true. Some of the dumbest people that have ever lived in the history of the world are the millennial generation of today. Probably ranks as the dumbest generation that's ever lived. And I'm sorry if you're in that generation. doesn't mean you individually have to be that way. Jesus Christ in the Bible and God's grace can uh, redeem you from that as it redeems people from all their cultural anomalies. You want to talk about dumb? Look at people today. Look at the people they elect. Look at the things they do. It's a dumb person that thinks they're, that was born a man, that thinks they're a girl just because they think they wake up one morning and decide, that's a pretty dumb person. Ancient people weren't stupid. Before the flood were advanced civilizations. After the flood, everything that we have today is built on the foundations of those that didn't have the technologies we have to build the things we have. But they gave us the foundation and the knowledge. Ancient men men weren't fools. They weren't dumb. They weren't monkeys. They weren't apes. They weren't cavemen. Very soon after the flood, they went to build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Verse 4, And let let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. God told Noah and his sons to spread out. But men, their descendants, very quickly, their children and grandchildren, decided they didn't want to do that. They had a better way. We're going to do it our way. The same spirit that Cain had, the exact same spirit. We want to make a name for us. That's what Cain did when he went out from the presence of the Lord and built a city and named it after his son. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, they're unified. And they have all one language. And this they began to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, let us go down. This is God speaking. Trinity, one God, three persons. Even man-made religion and mythology that can be traced back to the beginning of the world. In ancient times, acknowledged a Trinitarian God. That's why that Trinitarian concept quickly came into their false religions after Bible. The true God is a trinity. A lot of people hate that, but that's the spirit of Antichrist. That's what I told this Muslim man in a mall. Couldn't said he used to be a Christian, but he couldn't, he couldn't uh, accept the trinity. He wasn't sharing with us his own faults. He was just repeating what some imam had brainwashed him to believe. He never could give us an example of anything from the scriptures. He's like, I've got to go back and research, and I'll give me your email address, and I'll send you something. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You don't even know your own book. At least he was humble, though, and we had a great conversation. This they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build that city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord there did confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. God told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and to scatter. They refused to do it. God's going to get His way eventually. And He scattered them. And He scattered them at Babel. At Babel we saw the unity of man coming together. Unity and tolerance. That we might make a name for ourselves. And that we may build a tower to reach unto heaven. And that we may be gods. That's the spirit of today's globalism. There's nothing new. God stepped into space and time. He didn't even have to lift a finger. There wasn't even a battle. He just confounded their languages. And when their languages were confounded, they were forced to spread out because they couldn't understand each other. The foundation you saw in that video a couple of weeks ago is the foundation of the Tower of Babel or Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's time. And it's referred to in ancient literature as the Tower of Borsippa, which in that ancient language means tongue tower. So Nebuchadnezzar makes reference to the tongue tower and its foundation during his time. So that foundation was still around in the days of Nebuchadnezzar and atop it they built the Tower of Babylon. That's why in that interview you saw him refer to Babel and the Tower of Babylon. Tower of Babylon was from Nebuchadnezzar's day. But it was built upon that foundation named as a testimony. So you had man coming together, you had globalism, it's nothing new under the sun, God confounded it in an instant. And that's exactly what happens here in Genesis 14. All of this globalism, all of this gathering is gathering to be put down in an instant. When the Son of Man returns and you read there in Revelation 19, He doesn't even have to break a sweat to overthrow the armies of the earth. He doesn't even have to break a sweat! It's over. It's done. It's fallen. Nothing new under the sun. Men don't learn. That same spirit that we see at Bible is what we're seeing today. That same unity they had at Bible, man has been wor- or Satan has been working toward getting back ever since, and we see it today. Even with the language here on Earth, more than any other time in history, we have a language that unifies people. There's no question that the English language is the universal language of the end times. And it's by the English language that people of all different nations can communicate in areas of world politics in the United Nations. Yes there's other important languages too, but English unites it all. World Finance, it's working back. It's working toward Babel. But just as happened then, God will confound. Nimrod is a type of antichrist. Gathers all the people together, tries to overthrow God, it ends in an instant. Antichrist comes, gathers everyone together, persecutes God's people, tries to sit in the place of God and make himself God, it ends in an instant. In fact, it says in Daniel that this little horn, this antichrist, will be broken without hand. That means Christ won't even have to use a hand to break him. It's instant. Just like man was broken There at Babel. Sudden judgment. Man's quest broken. So here in Genesis 11 we have a type of what the angel is announcing there in Revelation 14.8. It's funny because in the Psalms, turn to Psalm Psalm 2, not Psalm chapter 2. These are individual Psalms. Songs of praise and worship written by people in Israel to glorify the God they served God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Psalm 2 is one of the great messianic psalms. It's referring to Messiah. It's referring to mankind's attempt to overthrow God's Messiah. It's an age-old attempt that's going to fail. The psalmist asks, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The heathen in this 11 raged and imagined a vain thing that they could actually build a tower to heaven and invade it just like Satan did before Genesis 1 verse 2. Tried to invade heaven. Foolish. And he was cast down. Sometime between Genesis 1.1 1, 1 and 1, 1.2. Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That word there is Mashiach, Messiah. They take counsel against His Messiah saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords away their cords from us. That's the spirit of Cain. That's the spirit of Nimrod. We're not going to be ruled by God. Let's get rid of this. We're going to be our own gods the world system, the body politic. And then what does God do? Verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. What a joke. The Lord shall have them in derision. The very people that mock God and attempt to overthrow Him will be the instruments whereby His Word is fulfilled in detail. The Bible's a bear trap. It'll catch you one way or another. It'll catch you and break you and you'll be humble and you'll follow the God of the Bible or it'll catch you and snap you and use you to fulfill what it prophesied centuries and centuries before. And in the end, you'll be the fool. It's a bear trap. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Confusion. confusions, judgment from God. The Lord's not the author of confusion in the church. But confusion of face is a judgment from God allowed upon the wicked. You can look at Daniel. Daniel acknowledged that in his day with Israel. Then shall he, that is the Lord, speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's exactly what we see there in Revelation 14, the very beginning. The snapshot of assembly. Who's standing there on Zion? The anointed one. Comes to pass. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten me. Messiah is the Son of God. Yes, God has a Son. And if He doesn't, you have no hope. Ask of me, this is Messiah, or God speaking to Messiah. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost of the earth for thy possession. The great missionary passage that I've heard preached at missions conferences and missions orientations. Let's go out and pray, like, like here in the Psalms God, we're going to ask you, give us the heathen for your inheritance. Let's bring the heathen to Christ. That's not what this is talking about. Look at the next verse. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Messiah is told to ask God for the heathen. God will give, them, give him the heathen to break them. Just like what was done at Bible in Genesis 11. We need to be careful about pulling Scriptures out of context. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings... So God never pronounces judgment without warning, without a way of escape. Here's a way to escape this. O ye kings, ye judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Something that's absent from all the God talk today. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is how you escape the demise of Babel and the world system. Kiss the sun. not the sun in the sky the Son of God, lest He be angry and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Unless you kiss the Son and acknowledge Him and His Messiahship and His Sonship as true followers of Jesus Christ do, you're going to perish when His wrath is kindled only a little bit. You're going to perish. Blessed are those that put their trust in Him. You see, the sun, furious judgment, a furious storm, but also the shelter from that storm. The prophet Nahum tells us this in chapter 1. Blessed are all they that put their trust, not their lip service, their trust, their heart attitude in Him. So as God dealt with Nimrod and people gathered at Babel, He declares in the Psalms prophetically that He'll deal the same way with the spirit of globalism and Bible that culminates in the days of Revelation. Globalism today is the spirit of Bible. Globalism began in the plain of Shinar. And it's endured in one form or another ever since. Now it's kind of interesting when you go back and look at historical records and the religious mythology of ancient kingdoms. Um, the worship of Baal or Baal worship, the false religious system can be traced back to this period as well. You had Shem who was a servant of the Most High God. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. He was entrusted with preserving the knowledge of the true God after the flood. But quickly his relatives turned from the true God. Just like Cain and his descendants did. Just like even some of Adam's descendants did except for that one faithful line. And then they were all corrupted by what happened in Genesis 6, except for Noah. Same thing happened after the flood. Men turned from God. When you look at some of these historical records, you can find reference to this man, Cush. Cush is noted as the founder of Babylon. So he was inevitably involved. This son of Ham was inevitably involved with what happened in Genesis 11 the gathering of the people. He was the founder of Babylon or Babel. There are other names that he is given in in, in other cultures. He's referred to as Baal or the sun god. Baal is where we get the word Baal in the Old Testament. And he's also referred to in Greek and Roman mythology as Hermes or Mercury. The word Hermes Uh, in, um, in terms of its linguistic root simply means son of Ham. So we have this religious mythology pointing back to historical events. So we have this Cush, this wicked man, referred to as the founder of Babylon in some traditions, also known as Baal or Hermes, the son of Ham. And then we've got this character, Nimrod, who is his son, the 13th from Adam. He's referred to, there's a character in ancient literature and religious mythology called Ninnus. Ninnus is considered the first king of Babylon. And we see evidence of that, Genesis chapter 10. You had this mighty one before the Lord, and then it said he had a kingdom. The beginning of his kingdom was Babylon. These kingdoms, I believe, arose in different cities after the Tower of Babel. So we're seeing testimony of Nimrod after the Tower of Babel, after men were confounded. And as a result, he went forth and built cities and built a kingdom and began to conquer men. He's the one that taught men how to war against each other, according to ancient tradition. Some of it coming from the Jewish historian Josephus. Well, it's said that this Cush married a woman. Her name was Semiramis. She's referred to in history or alluded to as the Queen of Babylon or the Queen of Heaven we find in the prophet Ezekiel. The Queen of Heaven, Jeremiah as well. She's referred to or known in other traditions as Rhea, which means the goddess mother, the mother goddess. Or sometimes she's called Sibyl, C-Y-B-E-L-E Sybil, and she's pictured in ancient uh, artifacts as having a turreted crown that kind of looks like a wall with towers. The goddess of fortifications. She was the queen of Babylon and it's said that she was the one that pushed to have a wall built around the city. What remained after the Tower of Babel incident these cities that were built didn't have walls until Babylon. The goddess of fortifications. Um, Now when we look at the Cush, the Semiramis, the Nimrod triangle there, what we have here is a mother that eventually married her son. Her son was killed and then she went into hiding and out of that came this mother goddess with the sun imagery that we see in so many false religious traditions around the world including Roman Catholicism the Madonna with the baby Jesus that's all Babylonian imagery that goes back to this madness Now, I I had the privilege of teaching US history uh, at a Christian school years ago I only lasted one year because uh, I couldn't put up with the incompetence of the administration and all the hypocrisy all the corruption that was there, but I loved the teaching. And I got in trouble over there because in my US history class, I didn't start with the Mayflower. I didn't start by talking about Jamestown. I didn't start by talking about uh, uh, the colonies. I started with this. The Tower of Babel. The Spirit of Babylon. And I, I quickly summarized all this down to the days of Pentecost. If you really want to look at U.S. history and its spiritual legacy, we've got to start with Pentecost. Because what was founded here was the instrument whereby the church could fulfill more than any other time in history its Great Commission. You can't separate all that. So the very first reading assignment I gave to my U.S. history students was one of these great... Comic books put out by Chick you can't. It's hard to get these big size comics anymore, but there's some profound spiritual truth here illustrated in comic book format. This is one of my all-time favorite reads. It's called Sabotage. I don't loan this out because it's the only copy I have, and it's very difficult to find. I think you can find it online. But I gave them this as their first reading assignment, and I got in trouble for it. I had good reason there. Um, I want to share with you a little, little segment of this. Uh, let me see if I can get the little segment from this book today because it talks about some of these events and they're summarized in a nice layman's format and they're taken from a variety of ancient sources. I've read some of these sources that are uh, referred to here. Okay, let me try this. Hmm. Okay. Sabotage. Now basically the storyline here is you have this seminary student who's really excited about learning about the Bible and getting trained how to preach so he can go out and serve the Lord on the mission field. And he gets in the seminary. And he's got this Greek professor that every other every other word seems to be questioning what he's got in his English Bible. How you know it's translated this way, but a better translation is this. And then the professor goes into all this. We don't really have the Word of God today. You need to teach your congregations that the King James is the Word of God, but it's really not. The Word of God's in the original manuscripts, and those don't exist anymore. So we really don't have it. And really, we are the ones that have the answers by studying the languages and all this kind of madness. This, uh, uh, what Jesus calls the Nicolaitanism that he hates. But this seminary student who had a faith in the Word of God suddenly is being taught to doubt this faith at a seminary where he thought he had gone to become... uh, to, to be trained to serve the Lord. And he gets really angry one day, and he begins, it's kind of kind of crazy, but he begins throwing stuff, and you people don't believe the Word of God. I renounce my faith. This is garbage. And he beats the professor up, and he beats the dean of men up, and he leaves, and he tries to burn the seminary down, they arrest him and throw him in jail. And he becomes this terrible, hardened criminal, where he finally serves his time, and he's going to be let out and uh, his mother contacts these two guys that he used to know in his church and ask them to go pick him up. So they go pick him up from the jail and they take him home and they get in his face and they begin to tell him why he encountered these things in his seminary. And they begin to tell him the story of this false world system. It goes back to Adam and it's kind of a neat tracing from Adam all the way up to the present day and how Satan's been involved in even trying to tamper with the scriptures and cause us to doubt the scriptures. And it's a really interesting read, and in the end, the guy wakes up he gets sa- uh, saved, and it's kind of funny, he's got a big old mullet and a shaggy beard and it uh at the very end, it says, "I'm a Bible believer again. I thank God for this meeting, guys. I've changed my life, but I do have one more question: What is it, Gary? Do you guys know where I can find a good barber the end and it's got a clear a very clear gospel presentation but As as, as these events are happening, we get to an interesting little read here that sums up what I've tried to explain, and there's a lot more details, and there's some books that are very hard to read historically, but I'm going to just kind of read it. I'm going to start here. It says, in the Bible, in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, we saw where God destroyed the earth. This is where they're telling uh, this guy, uh, Gary, about why he was deceived. We saw where God destroyed the earth with a great flood because the people had become so rotten. God found only one man He could trust. His name was Noah. After the flood, Noah died and the people began to spread across the earth. The man who stood for God was one of Noah's sons, Shem. Remember, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Shem, through the flood, he saw God's awful judgment and would not put up with sin. It wasn't long until Cush came along. Cush was the son of Ham. He was Noah's grandson. This was the guy Satan was waiting for. Cush married the most beautiful woman on earth. Her name was Semiramis. She became known as the Queen of Babylon. She was the pits. No woman ever was more rotten than she was. Layman's terminology. Really simplifying something, but it's Layman's terminology. Later in Rome, she would be called Venus, the mother of all evil. Cush and Semiramis had a son. They named him Nimrod. This happened around the time of the Tower of Babel. He was just as evil as his mother. When he grew up, he married his mother. Satan used Nimrod and his mother to set up his occult worship called Baal worship. All of the false religions of the world today can be traced back to Baal worship. Baal worship is the spirit of Cain that just rose up after the flood. This satanic religion began in secret with the most terrible of occult practices, the sacrificing of babies. So this would have happened after Babel, after men were scattered. When Shem, who was Nimrod's great uncle now remember Shem lived until Abraham was 150 years old. So I mean he's alive a long time after the flood. When Shem, who was Nimrod's great uncle, got wind of what Nimrod was doing, he killed Nimrod for his crimes against God. These things are not recorded in the scriptures, but they're recorded in other traditions, Jewish histories. and uh, Shem cut Nimrod's body into pieces and sent them to different cities, so this would have been after Babylon, after Tower of Babel, as a warning to others messing with the occult. These guys are sitting here looking, I'm afraid, look, it's Nimrod's arm. (laughs) Semiramis had a brainstorm. If she played it right, she could brainwash the people into believing Nimrod was actually a god that they should love instead of remembering him as a monster. Semiramis was crafty. Satan worship went underground. But there was a price to pay for joining it. They had to tell her priest everything they ever did wrong. It was called a confessional. I never told anyone about this. Oh, you can trust me. After telling all, the people were scared to death that the priest might expose them. This way, Semiramis controlled them with an iron fist. Semiramis gave the word that Nimrod was now a god, the sun god, Baal. They bought into it. Then she became known as the queen of heaven and won the hearts of the people. Soon statues appeared of Semiramis holding her husband slash son, Nimrod, the sun god. She pulled it off. all worship was off and running. In Egypt, Semiramis was called Isis, the queen of heaven, and her son or husband, Osiris, most frequently called Horus, the sun god. This religion spread worldwide. In China, she was called Xingmu, the holy mother of China. In ancient Phoenicia, she was called Ashtoreth. She was known as Diana in Asia Minor. And it doesn't say this but she's also known as the Virgin Mary in Catholicism okay Gary now you've got the background of Baal worship let's cut back to Rome when persecutions of the Christians Christians had stopped Gary says man this is heavy the Roman Empire was ready to fall apart the Caesars were smart enough to figure if they lost their armies they could always switch jobs and become religious leaders and continue to roll the people and then it goes into constant same thing Marriage of the spiritual with the commercial. So this is kind of the context of what's going on here in a very simplified form. And this is very simply uh, summarizing ancient religious records and mythologies. You know, If you go back and study a lot of mythological religious traditions from various places around the world, you'll find a flood story. You'll find a story of, of, of a world that was destroyed by a flood by God or the gods and there was one person that was spared in a boat with his family. Those things aren't evidence that the Bible is just another man-made myth. It's evidence that all of these traditions sprang from an original truth of which the Bible bears witness. So we have some very evil individuals going on here. Cush, Semiramis, Nimrod, it's in this context that the Tower of Babel occurs. And then after the Tower of Babel, when men are spread out, it tells us that the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. And then Erech and Ahad and Calneh, The fact that he went out and built other cities means that this was after the Tower of Babel. So we have Genesis 10, and then when we get to Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel, we're kind of backing up and given a little more detail. Just like happens in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1, we kind of back up, and give more detail. Exactly what happens in Revelation. The chronology is uh, progressing, and then there are these parentheses where we back up and give more detail. It's consistent throughout the Scriptures. So after Babel, this Nimrod began to build cities. There were descendants of Shem that followed his lead and did the same. Asher went out and built Assyria, and these became the foundations of the great ancient kingdoms that would come along, some of which would persecute God's nation, the people of Israel. And their spirit continues even today. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and then tradition says he was the first one who actually carried on war and conquered his neighbors. So he taught the people that he hunted with how to hunt humans and to go out after Babylon conquer people. The languages were different now so the only reason way you can get power is to conquer. And that's where war began or originated. In Genesis chapter 11 we have the Tower of Babel, the spirit of globalism where it began and how it was overthrown and then immediately thereafter starting with verse 10 we have Shem's line. The line of the one that was told, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, we have His line traced all the way down to Abraham. So immediately after this story showing the origin of the world system, we have the line of God's witness traced. Shem's line is traced all the way to Abraham just like before the flood, so it was after. In the midst of all this sea of nations, this corruption, this quick falling, into the spirit of the world system that had once existed or began with Cain, God reserved unto himself a faithful witness through a line of people. Just like from Adam through Seth to Noah was a godly line. After the flood, when men quickly returned to the ways that had been before the flood, God maintained a witness. And we see that witness beginning with Shem going all the way down to Abraham. That's what we have at the end Of chapter 11 verses 10 through 32. Now remember from the flood to Abraham was about about 430 years and then from uh, uh, Abraham to the law was or the promise in Genesis 12 to the law was 430 years so we're talking about two blocks of time that are roughly equal. Let's look for a minute at Shem. I want to get to one point and I'm going to stop. Shem, we're told, lived 502 years after the flood. He died when Abraham was 150 years old. Isaac had already been married for 10 years when Shem died. And that would be 10 years before Jacob was born. This would have been 1846 B.C. that Shem died. So we have a great overlap. So all of these things I've talked about, Abraham would have been well aware of it. It would have been in the midst of this. Cities and men building kingdoms and the false world system was all around when in Abraham's day would have been aware of it. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, Noah prophesied. Shem would be a priest. He would be entrusted with preserving the knowledge of the true God. An ancient man, in, in respect of everybody else living at that time, Shem lived to be 150 years older than any other man recorded after the flood. So from the perspective of everybody else, he would have been someone that was like didn't even have a father or mother without descent. This guy's super old. And he's the one that was entrusted with preserving the knowledge of the true God. We know, based on Noah's prophecy, that he was entrusted with priestly responsibilities. Turn to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, verse 18. Abraham, Lot was captured by some of these wicked Canaanite kings. Abraham got a band of his servants together. They pursued him to the ancient city of Dan. And Abraham got Lot back and fought a great battle and won. And as he was coming back, it says in verse 18 there, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Abraham tithed a tenth of his spoil to Melchizedek, who's called the priest of the Most High God in Abraham's day. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Jerusalem, what it would later be called, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also gave a tenth part of all, first, by interpretation, king of righteousness, comma, and after that also, king of Salem, which is king of peace. Here we have Melchizedek referred to in Hebrews as a type of Christ. Melchizedek was king of righteousness and yet king of peace. He was a type of Christ. And here we have references to both of Christ's comings. Christ came once as a king of righteousness. What He did on the cross and through His burial and resurrection, even His baptism, it said, was to fulfill all righteousness. And then He's also a king of peace. The peace doesn't come until he returns the second time. You know, why is Jerusalem called the city of peace? It's never been a place of peace. In fact, when we're introduced to Melchizedek here, the king of Salem, it's in the context of a battle and a slaughter of Canaanite kings. There's never been peace in Jerusalem. Why, is it, why does the Bible call it the city of peace? Jerusalem's been fought over by more people more armies and more nations than any other nation in history. The Bible said it would be a couple of trembling that all nations would concern itself with in the last days. That's why what we see today. It baffles me that these third world nations on the other side of the world who have nothing to do with Israel or its resources or anything get their panties in a wad over the land of Palestine. It's because God said it would be a couple of trembling. It's never been a place of peace But why is it called the city of peace? It's called the city of peace because it's there where all wars will end. It's there where all wars will end because it's there that Christ Jesus will step into space of time and put down this world system. And from that point forward, there will be peace. So we have an allusion to the first two comings of Christ here. And then look at verse 3. This Melchizedek, who was he? "...without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually." So this is not talking about Christ. He was made like unto the Son of God. He wasn't the Son of God in the Old Testament. Melchizedek wasn't Jesus. Melchizedek was a type made like unto the Son of God in that he was a king of righteousness, a king of peace, and he abided as if he had no father or mother or no descent. Well, who would that possibly be? If we know that Shem lived to be 150 years, uh, lived till Abraham was 150 years, we know he was there in Genesis 14. We know he was entrusted with preserving the knowledge of the true God. From the perspective of everybody living in Abraham's time, you have a man that lived to be 150 years older than any other man after the flood. He would certainly have appeared to have been someone without descent, without father, without mother, especially if Noah and his wife migrated across the planet. A type of Christ. Here we have Abraham giving tithes to Shem, one of his ancestors, and acknowledging the Most High God. And then Shem blessing Abraham and confirming what had been promised to him in Genesis chapter 12, that God had a purpose for him. In a sea of nations, God would raise up a nation from Abraham to be what Shem had been from the days of Noah down to the flood. Now Noah, as I said earlier, probably migrated east. He's not in the picture now. He literally obeyed what God told them to do in Genesis chapter 9. Noah literally obeyed. God said, Be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply. Well, Noah went out and did that. And so he uh, wouldn't have been around. So Shem would appear to have been someone without father, without mother. Um, Shem had five sons. I'm going to quit. Just give me one second. Shem had five sons. One of those, Asher, hooked up with Nimrod and builded the city of Assyria. Assyria pops up in the Bible. Jonah, prophet Nahum... The kings that try to carry away the northern kingdom later. We have five listed. Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. Nothing's really said other about these people. But Arphaxad is the third one listed as Shem's descendants. And it's through him that the line is traced down to Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. I just want to share something interesting here. This third son, Arphaxad, is unlike his... At least his other brother he didn't go out and build a city and get hooked up with all that there's a godly line here um, a faithful line amidst an unfaithful political system our facts had died 13 years after Abraham entered into the land of Canaan so our facts had died when Abraham was 88 years old so this man this this Man would have lived, this grandson of Noah would have lived all the way up until after Abraham went into Canaan. So it would have been before Isaac was born, but until Abraham was about 88 years old. And then we're told that our fax had had a son when he was 35 years old named Salah. Now, this is kind of interesting and it goes back to the genealogies we have concerning Messiah. In Genesis we have Noah, Shem, Arphaxad, Selah. But if we go to the genealogy of Christ that we find in Luke chapter 3 that goes through Mary, we find another name added. And people have always poked fun at this and say this is proof that the Bible's wrong and it can't be trusted. Turn to Luke chapter 3 verse 36. If you'll just bear with me, I know I'm running a little long, but we don't have an evening service, and I'm still getting done a lot quicker than James' church will get done, or got done earlier. They're quite a bit ahead of us. They may still be going on over there. What happens with Luke is he traces the genealogy from Jesus back to Adam. Okay, Matthew traces it from Abraham to Jesus through Joseph. Joseph is mentioned here in Luke's genealogy, but we know him to be the father-in-law of Jesus. So this is the genealogy of Mary. They both go back through David. We see where they cross lines in the days of Zerubbabel. We talked about this back during the Christmas season. See this genealogy here, and Luke is tracing it from Mary, and Joseph is listed as a son-in-law. We've got several son-in-laws. Joseph... We talked about Rasa being a son-in-law. Zerubbabel had a daughter that was numbered amongst his sons. And then this daughter would have married Rasa. Rasa would have been a son-in-law and they gave birth to the children. One line would go down to Joseph. One line would go down to Mary. The Messianic lines crossed in David's day from Mary and Joseph and in Zerubbabel's day. And we're tracing it all the way back to Adam. And when we get... Let's look at verse 34 talks about Judas, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham. Okay, we're familiar. Which was the son of Terah, Nahor, Sarek, Ragal. Remember, these spellings are a little bit different because they're in Greek. And the Greek word and the Hebrew word are a little different, but it's the same people. Ragal would be Ru. Uh, Phalek, which was the son of Eheber, it's the same as Eber, which was the son of Salah or Selah, which was the son of Canaan. Which was the son of Arphaxad. So here we have a Canaan that's listed as the son of Arphaxad. Of course, in the Old Testament, we see that name spelled like this. Remember, in Noah's genealogy, it is right here. So the spelling's a little different. But what in the world is that? Can Luke not get? He gets it right with everybody else. What in the world? That's not in the Old Testament. We have an extra name. And it's funny when you look at the genealogies, if you include Canaan in this line, as Nimrod was the 13th from Adam in that line, a type of Antichrist, Canaan would have been the 13th in the line traced from Luke, Messianic line, from Adam down to Canaan. Now, what does this mean? We're told in Genesis that Arphaxad had a son named Selah when he was 35 years old. So how in the world could Selah be his grandson? Is that possible? Where does this Canaan fit in? Well, we've already seen in Luke's genealogy that there are the presence of father-in-laws. And so it's reasonable to conclude that this Arphaxad only had daughters. And as a result, Canaan married in and Salah was actually his grandson. Is that even possible? Yeah, it's real possible. After the flood, our facts said at 17 years old, could have fathered a daughter, fathered another one at 18, fathered another one at 19. And it became obvious that he wasn't going to have any sons anytime soon. His first daughter then could have married at 17 years old, and fathered this Selah at 18 years old, and our fact said would have been a 35-year-old grandfather. Very possible. But who was this Canaan? The 13th from Adam? Here, Nimrod's a type of Antichrist. Is it possible that the 13th through the godly line could have also been, or could have been a type of Christ? Who is this Canaan? Well, we have a Canaan here. In Ham's line, remember Noah prophesied, Cursed be Canaan, right? Cursed be Canaan. He was cursed. Of course, he became the father on one side of all the Canaanite peoples. Oh, this is kind of hard to erase. I know the, the day is late, but just give me one moment. to show you something kind of neat, and then we'll end. Here we have Noah, Shim. Shim had a or, or or Faxed daughter and Sela. Perhaps what happened here is that this young man who was cursed, perhaps he had another wife. She obviously fathered the Canaanites, but at some point, according to Luke, he got into this genealogy of Messiah, married Arphaxad's daughter. They had a son named Selah. So Selah was really the grandson of Arphaxad, which... Sons and grandsons are the same terminology is used. Sometimes grandsons were elevated to the position of sons, like Ephraim and Manasseh. So that's what we could have going on here. And Luke's already been shown to be using father-in-laws. So we have one who is cursed, and his descendants through Ham's line curse, but then he shows up blessed. He shows up blessed and in the genealogy of Messiah. Nimrod, a type of Antichrist, the 13th from Adam. Is it possible that this 13th from Adam through Ham, who was cursed, could suddenly be blessed and be a type of Christ? Turn to Galatians 3. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely beating Matthew's record today. hmm. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Why was Christ cursed? That the blessing of Abraham, the line of Abraham down through Isaac and Jacob... Might come on the Gentiles, all the Gentiles, the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Japheth, the descendants of Shem's other sons, that the blessing of Christ, uh, or, or that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ was cursed, and he was cursed that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. That's what Christ was. In this genealogy, we see one who was cursed and yet blessed by being brought into the Messianic line. And as a result of that Messianic line that would go through Selah all the way to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the children of Israel, down to Messiah, all the nations would be blessed. So in a weird way, you have the 13th of Adam through Ham... Uh, the 13th from Adam through Ham, Nimrod being a type of Antichrist in that globalist spirit that falls in Revelation 14. And you have Canaan that pops up according to Luke in the Messianic genealogy being the 13th from Adam through Noah and Shem as a type of Christ, one who was cursed and then suddenly blessed. I just find that interesting. I wouldn't fight and die on that hill. But there is a Canaan, and it makes sense that it's this one here. One who was cursed is suddenly a father-in-law in in the genealogy of Christ. Just like others who were cursed. Rahab was a Canaanite. A descendant of Canaan. And she was blessed. Jericho was cursed. God told the Israelites to destroy everybody in there, but Rahab and her family escaped because of their faith. Ruth, a Moabitess. Okay? Um, uh, there's another one in that. Tamar the Canaanite. So we've got Canaanites in the genealogy of Christ elsewhere. I just find that very interesting. A type of Nimrod, a type of Antichrist, and a type of Christ right there in this context after the flood. Seed of the serpent, Genesis 3, Antichrist, Seed of the Woman, Genesis uh, 3, Messiah. It's always been there. This uh, Selah died 18 years after Isaac was born. 1878 BC, I believe. Selah would be the father of Eber. Eber is where we get the word Hebrew. And according to Genesis 10, when it talks about the line of Shem... This Eber is very important. Genesis chapter 10 verse 2 says, um, I'm sorry, 10 verse 21 says, Unto Shem also, who was Shem? The father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. So this Eber is obviously very important. He lived a long time. And his name denotes wandering, traversing, crossing over. It's the opposite of what men like Nimrod did. They settled down and built cities. Eber was a wanderer. Abraham in Genesis 14 is called Abraham the Hebrew. He's a descendant of Eber. Eber was alive. In fact, Eber doesn't die until Jacob is 19 years old. He outlives Abraham by four years. That's where the word Hebrew comes from. A wandering people in contrast to those that settled down in cities and followed the world system. And it's from Eber the Hebrew or the wanderer that Abraham would come and the nation that God would raise up out of a sea of nations would be a wandering people that God brings out of Egypt and puts in a land and puts them there and then they're scattered and all of that stuff is to us an example, a warning, and a comfort of the scriptures. Babylon has been here from the beginning of time in Revelation 14.8 it suddenly falls praise God the world systems going down And we're going to rejoice. And it's reared its head numerous times. And it's going to culminate in the globalism we see today. Nothing new under the sun. But in all of that, God has always reserved a remnant and ensured that the knowledge of the true God is not stamped out. And He did it to raise up a nation. Started with a godly line before the flood, a godly line after the flood. And then He proposed after Babel, a sea of nations to raise up a nation. And that's what he did with the people of Israel. They're very important to this, Deuteronomy 32. And I'm going to talk about that next time. And then, of course, the church spiritually is a part of that as well. We are here to be a witness amidst the corruption. Just like Noah, just like Methuselah, just like Enoch, just like Shem, just like Arphaxed and Selah and Eber, and Peleg and Ru and Sarag and Nahor. We don't like Terah, Abraham's father who was just like Solomon, knowledge of the true God, part of the line, but then he turned to other gods. He was an idol worshiper, according to the book of Genesis, just like Solomon. We're here to be a witness just like Abraham was. All of these men, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of the body politic, having hope because one day this corrupt system will fall. The world system will fall. Does anybody have any questions? Definitely beat the record today. I hope you guys don't mind. I, I'm sorry to go long, but I just find this stuff very interesting. We'll pursue next week. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the rest of this line down to Abraham. And then I want to look at Abraham and Lot and Sarah and how they're connected. Bring it down to the 12 tribes of Israel and why they are important even in all of this history that takes place before that. And then... um I didn't, this sermon spread across two notebooks, and then I want to bring it right back to Genesis or, or Revelation 14 and how the fall of Babylon is described elsewhere in the scriptures, Daniel chapter 2. And we can rejoice in those things. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time of your word. I know it's been long, but um, it's nice to take time out to study your word and. Uh, i I know that because we've been willing to hear and listen and hear today that you'll bless this beautiful day that remains for us, and bless our food in the time of fellowship, multiply it to our strength and nutrition and um Lord, I just pray that we wouldn't be hearers of the word but doers of the word, and we we too live in dark times, Lord, like other men of old did, and may we be a may it be said of us like it was said of Shem, blessed be. This body of believers, uh, blessed be the Lord God of this body of believers, like it was said of Shem long ago. Thank you for those examples we can look to and find comfort and hope. Thank you for those examples that we can look to and find warning and admonition. May we have ears to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.